There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to Text Message, the UK-focused technology podcast with me, Nate Langson. And me, Ian Morris. If you're one of our patrons, this is your extended ad-free version of this week's show. And if you're not a patron but would like to get our ad-free and extended versions and listen and interact with us live as we have with John and Luke and Nick and Richard and Stephen right now, all listening to us live, uh, just head to patreon.com forward slash UK tech and uh, you'll get instant access to our entire back catalogue of extended shows and bonus features. Today is a very special episode. We have actually got two amazing features for you. Um, Later on in the show, you are going to join me on a farm near Dublin learning about facial recognition technology for cows. And I can promise you it includes some gratuitous mooing. And that's because I spent a day on a farm with a company called Canthus, who are based near near Dublin in Ireland. And I was learning all about their technology and what better place to learn about the technology than seeing it used uh, in front of several hundred cows on a farm while it's being installed. That's coming up later. But first, to mark the two-year anniversary of our being on Patreon in the first place, uh, which it is this week, uh, the, the second anniversary of uh, of us being on Patreon. It was two years ago, almost to the day that we're recording this, that uh, that we first landed on the platform. I thought, why don't we mark it by meeting up with the CEO of Patreon itself, the guy who co-founded it, a chap called Jack Conti. He was in London this week for a conference, so I met up with him to talk a little bit about the history of Patreon and what it's doing for other people, not specific to to us as as uh, Nate Langson and Ian Morris and text message, but much more broadly, you know, what's it doing for the industry? How are other companies using it? What's the weirdest thing that people are getting supported by doing? And I did manage to throw a very British curveball at him that involved a bath of beans. So you can look forward to that answer, um, which is in a few moments, because here is Jack Conti telling us how Patreon got started in the first place. You know, the, the product came from my own need. Um, I've been a professional creator for the last 10 years. And about six years ago, um, I was finishing up a music video that I had spent about $10,000 on. And I, I drained my savings account to make this video. I maxed out two credit cards. <laughs> um, uh, the video involved a 3D printed hexapod robot and an animatronic head that was singing the lyrics to the song. I built a replica of Millennium Falcon cockpit behind me to do this music video. I went all out for this thing. It was wow. wild. And and um, yeah, I, I worked on this thing for three months, looked up, realized I was going to post it on YouTube. I would I would get about a million views, which is what my videos are usually getting around the time. And I would make about $200 in ad revenue. And I I felt so demoralized by that. I, I couldn't continue. I thought, this is bananas. This is insane that 
well, it's insane that this is what I'm going to get paid for all this work. And then it's also insane that everyone seems to be okay with this. Like, why are, as humans, why are we okay paying artists $150 for tens and tens of thousands of people who love their work? Um, the systems that we've built online to help creators, quote unquote, monetize their, their content, which is another word I don't like. I prefer the word art. But the systems that we've built to help creators monetize their content are so inefficient and so... Um, so not beneficial to the artists. Um, the thought was, gosh, what if I just like if I just asked my fans for a buck a month? I knew my fans would stand up, and um, I called up my freshman year roommate, Sam Yam. He coded the whole thing by himself in about three months. We launched, uh, and within two weeks, I was making five thousand dollars a month instead of a, a measly. $200. Um, that's how we got started. And then how did it get here? Well, gosh, other creators saw that and they saw that here's this guy making $5,000 a month and it just, you know, folks started signing up and it grew from there. What's the weirdest thing that someone has, you know, is getting paid to create or, or the, you know, the, the weird, who's the weirdest creator? And you don't need to name names specifically, yeah. but, but I'm curious, you know, who are you getting? Are you getting people who are, who are creating beard art are they shaving sponsorship messages into their cat i'm not i've not thought about doing it but i bet someone has you know we've seen yeah i guess we've seen all sorts of creators be successful on the platform we have some retail stores on the platform a coffee shop is on the platform and they just want you know community members to become members of the coffee shop and help keep the the idea and the culture alive um we have seen um there's um developers that release software on patreon um yeah there's there's stuff that we just did not imagine when we were starting it they're not that weird i was hoping you were going to say something like oh we've got someone who like when you the classic charity idea for example is you take a bath of beans you know you i mean maybe that's a british thing i don't know maybe i'm scare, <laughs> scaring you but people here they'll get into a bathtub full of baked beans and they'll sit there for an hour and wash themselves in beans and people will pay thousands of pounds <laughs> as part of a charity drive and so i suppose what i'm getting at is is anyone is anybody paying for a creator to do things in the equivalent of a bath of beans <laughs> i've never seen a bath of baked beans okay um is there anybody doing something like that not that i can think of um they're all too sensible yeah like what's the what's the wildest i mean honestly it it's all people that are contributing something and building value and fans who want to contribute for like good reason so no there, no, there haven't been any like just I would say, uh, you know, vapid or empty viral sorts of things just for the marketing side of it. No, it's it's pretty much creators who make awesome stuff that people want to be a part of. I see. Okay, well, I won't create a new tier on my Patreon that I'll do the podcast <laughs> from a bath of beans sponsored by Heinz or Branston, which my brother apparently says is the superior bean. Um, is it fair that, that a lot of people often describe Patreon as kind of a Kickstarter for subscription services i've heard people say that yeah. um i think i might have said that even at the beginning it's funny how things change over time and um i do not describe it like that anymore i don't think of it like that um i think the main reason is because we we really feel like patreon is membership at its core it's 
it's a way that folks can become members, just like people become members of, you know, WBEZ in Chicago or, um, you know, SF MoMA in San Francisco or something like that. It's a, it's a membership organization, membership technology, or the way folks, you know, pay for the New York Times or something like that. Um, we're just taking that technology and democratizing it and making it available for any creator to run their own membership. Um, and there's a combination of, you know, uh, benefits that you get as a member and this feeling of paying, you know, voting with your dollars. You're mm. voting for something that you believe in, something that's important for the world, something that you want more of. Um, membership is the combination of those two things. It's, yeah, I get some extra stuff for it. And this is also just a freaking good thing to do. And it's the right thing to do. Um, that's what makes it membership. I know that there's a lot of podcasters who listen to this show. I know there's a lot of people who work in media, work in tech, who are creatives. Um, if for, for any of those people who, who, who are hearing this and have been thinking about trying to set up a Patreon uh, page, what are currently like the best steps to go about that? Like, and what are the pitfalls, the common pitfalls that you see people making? Yeah, I guess maybe the, the, the first thing I'd bring up is there is a difference between um, audience building and then, you know, audience monetization. Um, and you can do, you can try to do both at the same time, but folks who are just getting started, I would encourage people to work on audience building for a while. Um, Patreon doesn't help creators. It's not a product that solves the problem of, hey, I don't have an audience yet and I want to grow my audience and build my audience. That's not what Patreon is for. Patreon helps you when you have an audience to build a business. Um, and so I guess the, the first thing is I'm encouraging folks to, to remember the difference between audience building and audience monetization, um, as gross and businessy as that sounds, <laughs> and, and to actually grow your audience first. Um, and there are so many platforms that do that amazingly well, Facebook and YouTube and Twitter and SoundCloud and DeviantArt and wherever you are no matter what you make there's some platform to find people who would like your stuff that's the first step of any uh, of any patreon and then i guess the next step is um you know once you have that audience and you're ready to actually build a business and make money and build a membership um you know, there's a bunch of best practices. I guess, you know, make sure that your tiers are filled with benefits that your fans are actually going to like and going to value. So, um, you know, talk to your fans, pull them, ask them what they want. Um, then there's some little specific things that I would encourage folks to do. Like, um, you know, don't have 15 tiers of membership, have three or four. Um, that's like the right, we found that that's the, the, the best zone in terms of the number of tiers you have. Um, also take advantage of Patreon's API. We have an open platform and we allow you to connect with other services like MailChimp and Discord and Discourse and mm -hmm. Google Sheets and whatever it is. So there's cool ways to give benefits to your patrons on other platforms where they might be hanging out. Even in Reddit, like we have like a, an integration with Reddit so your patrons can get flair next to their name. Do a little bit of research. We have a bunch of content on best practices for, for tiers and benefits and, um, and then set it up and go. And I, yeah, I think a lot of people also feel kind of nervous at the beginning because they think that this is uh, a permanent thing. Memberships are fluid. And we've seen you know, the creators actually who do best on the platform are the ones who are changing their memberships over time and going back to their patrons and saying, hey, folks, I'm thinking about deleting this tier and adding this one. What do you think? The patrons say, yeah, do that. Um, so just you know, have an open mind. Be playful about it. Be iterative experiment try things um yeah you know people have talked for a long time about the difficulty in making money from from podcasts for example and i don't mean you know people in my 
position you do it on a Sunday afternoon. But I mean, broadly, you know, maybe even bigger companies and things like that. And podcasts, I know, are one of the, you know, is a very popular thing on on Patreon. So do you get a sense that maybe you've helped solve one of the biggest problems in in podcasting in terms of how the hell do you make money out of it? That's what Patreon has set out to do. Um, I would say we're a long way from solving it completely, um, but we've made a huge dent so far. I mean, there are people who were making literally, you know, a few hundred dollars in, in ad revenue. Patreon helps people, we found on average, make 50 to 200 times more than they make through ad revenue. So we've certainly inflected creators' earnings, and I think we still have a long way to go. Um, but yeah, we've we've had a lot of impact so far. Is there any reason why a big business or maybe even a very large struggling business, uh, you know, couldn't also use Patreon in addition to their their typical, you know, sources of revenue advertising and things? No. I mean, I think more and more businesses actually are. There are companies on Patreon now that have 40, 50 employees and they're using Patreon to to run their entire membership stack. Um, so, yeah, we are starting to see businesses launch on Patreon. What's next for Patreon? What's next for Jack? Yeah, next for Patreon, um, you know, on a five to ten year time horizon, um, Patreon wants to make creators' lives easier. Um, creators have a ton of problems that, uh, that you know, it's this new emerging generation of people that um, are basically building small business media companies, and no one is building solutions for them. Um, and I can tell you as a creator myself, you know, there are so many things that I think most companies are just completely unaware of, you know, the thousands of emails that creators get, and then you have to somehow filter out just the, the interview requests or the, you know, whatever it is. It's everything from that to literally, you know, um, banks not understanding your income and refusing to give you a loan because they ask you for pay stubs and you don't know what pay stubs are or don't have pay stubs. Um, you have iTunes sales or, or whatever it is. Um, and yeah, next, you know, we really think of Patreon as a platform to help you grow your small business um, as a creator. And it's a creative media business. And and so, yeah, I mean, it, you know, over the next five, 10 years, some of these things aren't things we're working on right now, per se. But um, but over the long term, yeah, we want to we want to get into helping people run successful, viable, uh, creative businesses. Jack Conti, the CEO of Patreon, and thank you to him. And uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's encouraged a couple of extra people to try our, our Patreon out. Um, but uh, the most important thing is uh, to thank everyone for listening, no matter how they're supporting us, because it's because of you guys that we're, we're still here at all. Ian, shall we jump into some news? Sounds excellent. Uh, it, well, let's find out if it does, but I suspect your, your instincts are correct. It's going to sound great. <laughs> The MPs that fought with Facebook executives throughout 2018 over the company's role in spreading fake news have begun a new investigation into addictive technology. If you remember, this was the group that tried unsuccessfully to get Mark Zuckerberg to appear. It interviewed Christopher Wiley, the original whistleblower behind the Cambridge Analytica scandal, and it released a giant dump of internal Facebook emails to try and show the company had more knowledge about the fake news problem than it publicly claimed that it did. This time, though... 
The investigators, led by uh, MP Damien Collins, are examining the role immersive and addictive technologies have on society, and particularly uh, on young children. Social media, video games, virtual reality, the compulsive use of smartphones, these are all in the spotlight. And the first, uh, one of the first suggestions that came up during this, uh, this first evidence hearing was whether video game publishers should issue broad warnings to customers of their products um, that they might be addictive. An expert on the panel questioned um, whether such notices would actually not just be highly subjective and risk alienating shoppers rather than um, you know, giving them useful advice. And some of the other issues raised include the use of loot boxes in video games and whether the public had enough knowledge about their, how their personal data was being used um, by companies that develop them now this hearing is likely to last for the the rest of this year as as the uh, the previous hearing lasted most of last year <clears throat> immediately just from the the, the initial thing I, I it's quite a broad inquiry isn't it um so there's a lot of stuff that they're going to be talking about that almost feels like it should be separate issues really um i mean I, I mean, we don't need to talk about loot boxes again because we comprehensively covered that didn't we um but i the idea that they might have warnings on on games that they're addictive i mean is that something that we've actually proven it, that there that there is a conne- connection and that games are addictive well there's a lot of very good evidence to suggest that that it is that it is true yeah um but that's not to say that we need to have a sticker on the box that says it's a, a you know addictive you just have i don't have a problem if, if if it is addictive in the same way that say alcohol uh drugs might be um then i can see the logic behind it well let's just let's just throw out we're not we're not saying we're not saying that that it might be we're, we're saying that uh, i think studies have shown that video games like gambling trigger the same some similar you know interactions in the brain that you do get from other vices and there is a similarity there but 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 is that not just the enjoyment part of your brain yes i mean the nick in the chat room asks whether there should be investigation into whether books are addictive but yes well books are definitely addictive i mean but i suppose the point is that there's in terms of society we don't consider it a problem if someone is a bookworm if someone is constantly got their nose in a book we don't see that as a problem uh we don't consider that there's any sort of implication to that although books are just as capable in fact arguably more so of you know communicating things that uh you know could potentially change your worldview or whatever than pretty much anything else i mean you know so i i just there is also going to be a stigma and i think you've already sort of hinted at this there is a definite problem with technology in the, the the parliament and you know lawmakers don't, as a rule, have a, a good enough understanding um, of, of technology. I mean, it, that was never more clear than when Mark Zuckerberg was being questioned in uh, the US Congress, where he was making good points, but everyone was sort of thrown a, a loop a bit by the fact that the people questioning him just didn't have a clue. Um, so I'm worried, I'm worried that we're going to scapegoat technology as a as something that's different to TV or movies or books or smoking or drinking or sex. You know, I mean, they, these are all things that have largely the same set of 
rewards for your brain. Well, you point um, out something that's important, which is that this is a very broad inquiry. And we've highlighted on on video game and video game addiction here, um, just as part of this conversation. But actually, this is a much, much larger inquiry than 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 just video games. And one of the issues that I had with some of the questioning in this first evidence session was how many real world metaphors were being used um, to try and you know, but by the MPs to try and understand the nature of the problem. One example yeah. was given that you know um, uh, cigarettes are are you know widely understood to 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 cause a, a variety of diseases, and so there is a big fat warning on the box. Yeah. Um, but the problem is, and, and and a similar comparison was made, I think, by one of the academics on the panel that you know if you uh, if a if a drink a fizzy drink has too much sugar in it, uh, you can take that to a lab and test it and say there's too much sugar in this drink and slap a tax on it and there you go you have some legislation that tries to sort of um, keep uh, keep companies thinking twice about whether they should be adding more sugar to the drink but what was pointed out was that technology is a far more evolving beast than a sugary drink you can you can quantify what is in a drink in a lab objectively on merit whereas companies like facebook and google and, and apple and Microsoft and you can pretty much name the company, their products are iterative. You know, they sometimes will have multiple versions of the same product out to try and use the metrics and figure out, well, does this notification design engage people better than this notification design? So it's difficult to sort of slap a kind of broad brush warning on products and saying this is addictive because it's too difficult to quantify. Well, yes, and it is. And obviously, um, Facebook is adept at uh, working out what is and isn't addictive. I mean, from the analytics that it gets from how people interact with their newsfeed, they are very well aware. And you can see this if you if you spend any time using Facebook. And I'm, you're not a big Facebook user anymore, are you? But no. if you if you sit in it and you watch videos, then it will learn very quickly what videos you like to watch. And the goal, as with YouTube, is to ensure that it presents videos to you which are likely to keep you watching. Because obviously there's an ad, um, so I the, the question from that from that one single part of it is Facebook knows what they're doing. Their whole goal is to increase user time in the app. That is the entire reason for that platform to exist. Uh, it's the same with YouTube. the The goal given to the YouTube algorithm was not uh, increase the quality of what people are seeing. It was increase watch time, and by and because of that, and because that the algorithm is a, is a black box and no one has any control over it really, they are they are you know they will push video after video at you, which is targeted and. Um, that's why you see a lot of clickbait on YouTube, you know, um, you know, 10 people you thought were alive who were dead and all that kind of stuff and conspiracy moon theories and stuff like that um, because it engages that bit of your brain that is, well, that's not true. I'm going to watch that because it's not true or, oh, that's an interesting idea, you know. So these platforms are absolutely trying to get you to spend as much time in them as possible. Now, whether or not that's addictive, I don't know. And whether or not it needs a warning, I don't know. Well, that's the, that's the exact is... point of this investigation. And, and, it's, and, yeah. and, 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 and hopefully some respectable answers will come out of it and, and not increasing the fear, uncertainty and doubt that is 
sort of omnipresent <laughs> in the debates around this because it does strike a, a chord and it does get people very interested um, in this. But but I, I still don't know what the, what the proposal would be if it turns out that actually through their efforts to increase the time you spend in the app, you know, what... What are they going to tell Facebook and YouTube to do? Well, there's a number of things. I mean, they could, they could, I mean, for example, we don't have a regulator for social media. It's been widely proposed as a good idea, um, mm. largely to combat the spread of disinformation and to allow people a, a single place to complain to if they have a concern, like they can with, um, with journalists and newspapers and things. Um, so perhaps if such a body was to be created, there could be, uh, an element of oversight into whether apps are doing enough to warn people as to maybe you should take a break or maybe, um, mm. you know, I- I'm not saying it's a good thing. I, 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 just... <laughs> well, I was going to say, when was the last time you listened to any sort of warning about taking a break from anything? Yeah. No, I mean, I, I have, you know, I mean, it, it, it is a it's a it's something that they can say they've done, but I don't think it's actually helping. And I and Honestly, I don't think there is a solution because I don't think you can stop Facebook from deliberately trying to make itself as addictive as possible. You can. There are ways that you can at least highlight usage and allow people to come to their own decisions. It's why I like the screen time feature that Apple has on on the recent iOS. It's not telling you you should use it less. It's allowing you to make up your own mind whether you're using it more than you'd like to. And I think that very soft touch approach is a is a better way of tackling this sort of problem. It is in people who aren't addicted who are conscious of what they're doing. The people who are genuinely addicted, if that is a thing, um, will not be able to see it. It's the same as, you know, it, it, it takes a lot for someone with a, a legitimate drug or alcohol addiction to understand that they have an addiction. It's, it's not as easy as, you know, just, oh, you've had three drinks tonight. That's a bit uh, much for a weeknight or whatever. You know, it's, it, it's a, it, it requires a lot for someone to make that connection themselves. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't know what the answer is. I I suspect there isn't one. I think maybe information is probably the only thing we can really do and go, look, actually, you know, social media is probably as addictive as X, Y or Z. Um, You know, you should be careful. But I I don't hold out any hope of this, really. I just think it's one of those things that's been going on for so long that and I don't I don't think the companies will pay any attention. I think Facebook is unregulatable. I think this is the reason why inquiries like this should exist. You know, I don't. I don't have a view on on the, what the outcome should be, but the bottom line is, it's gone on for long enough without anyone asking questions about whether it's whether anything needs to change. So I'm, I'm just not exactly sure if they're capable of even making a decision in you know with an inquiry. I mean, someone's got I, to try. I just don't. Somebody's got. Well, to they try. have got to try, and and it's not it's not a bad thing for them to try. I just think that there, there is a real problem, and I, I think maybe the actual answer is to do it through the back door somehow. In that, I I think you have to consistently punish Facebook's everything. Facebook and Google and anyone else in the tech space does wrong. I think needs to be you know punished punitively so that they are so conscious of that that they are much more careful because at the moment the fines. They're they're a they're a a momentary inconvenience for companies like Facebook. You, you know what's I mean? What's the biggest they've had from the UK? Half a half a million is it? Something like that. You know, it's it's thirty seconds of ad time 
you know, or something like that. You know, it's 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 crazy. Another thing they're going to be looking at in this investigation is the impact that uh, technology has on mental health and particularly mental health of young people. And I think that that is a uh, a very admirable thing to be looking into because oh, yes. if you've ever, you know, see and we, and we I don't want to uh, be a stuck record on this because we've talked about it so much on the show before now but you only need to take a train journey and observe people using their phones on escalators mindlessly sweeping through home screens rather than actually doing anything on the device or getting into a lift and immediately pulling out their phone because the thought of 11 seconds being bored is just too much to bear that is only amplified 10 times in in children and <laughs> I think it's good that someone is actually um, looking at that and and at least maybe we can have a public conversation about it that long term helps but uh, certainly I'm not in favour of you know slapping gigantic warnings on boxes without uh, fully wow. studying the effects it, it would be pointless and I mean I, I, like you said I don't disagree but I think also perhaps we just have to trust that people will work it out for themselves um, and you know let them make the mistakes that lead them up to it I mean I don't think people you know, I don't I, I don't think people will because I you know I think I don't know. I don't want to get on a soapbox about this particularly, but I do think sometimes that imagine with cigarettes and alcohol, if every Mm. evening or once a week you were presented a photograph of your lungs or your liver and (laughs) every week it updated and said, here's an updated picture of your lungs or your liver or or, 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 or any whatever vice. I'm not I've picked on cigarettes and alcohol because they're popular, obviously, but it could be drugs. It could be whatever you want. Yeah. And every week you got to see the evolution of that, that visibility, the actual impact, the actual impact. Would that help people make decisions earlier about whether or not they wanted to carry on doing that? Like with screen time. Mm. Or, or if you type slash played into an MMO game, you can see that you've spent four weeks of your life logged into a game, or you can see that you've spent four hours a day browsing Instagram or whatever. Just that visibility mm. of the issue sometimes could maybe help you, could help encourage you to make a decision if you want to or not. And that's your choice to, to, to do that or not. That would be yeah. my question. Well, I, and that's a really good question. And I can, uh, but I think the thing is, um, if, if you think about something like alcohol and cigarettes, right? So, I mean, obviously, um, when you're young, those are the times when you're going to start drinking and smoking, if you're going to do it at all. Um, those are also the times when your body's best set up for dealing with those things. And um, that, that is less of a problem for young people. I, my, my, suggestion would be that uh, your idea is fantastic although very hypothetical um i don't think it would make a lot of sense humans are terrible at making long-term judgments and only only any good at making judgments on things that are that will immediately affect them so if you could tell someone that the next cigarette they smoke will be the one that starts the chain reaction that causes cancer then I think that would probably stop anyone from having that cigarette. If it, you know, I, th- this is a ridiculous example, but you know, I'm, I, I like what I like the idea of what you're saying, and I think it perhaps that's the answer is that if we can somehow make it so that um, the implications of these things are very clear, then then maybe there's a chance. But at the same time, I I, I still don't know how you're going to communicate that long-term thing. It's like speed cameras. The, the the suggestion is that speed cameras aren't effective at reducing people's speeding um, because it's a problem for another week. The Those boards that light up with your current speed and a warning are more effective, apparently, at pe- getting people to slow down. I 
per- personally have felt that some of the way that the the fines have been you know, placed on Facebook and stuff like that. And, and other companies, uh, E's been through it, Virgin Media's been through it recently with fines. It feels like a revenue raise. We, you know, we've got economic problems at the moment and they're not going to get any easier. Um, so I, I suspect that some of that is like, oh, well, we'll just grab some of our piggy bank money from a, a media company that hasn't behaved properly for a change. So a little bit of sticking up for the companies involved there because they are you know they are providing a service and earning money it's not unreasonable and i think that we have an inherent problem that on this podcast in particular is that you know we're very liberal you and i tend to agree on most things unless i'm deliberately disagreeing with you to provoke an argument and um and there will be people listening i'm sure who think the idea of having government poking its nose into private enterprise and potentially regulating and that this is all just a needless waste of time may very well have a point and we're not necessarily representing those so i would encourage those people in particular to get in touch hello at tech podcast and put forward the argument that perhaps ian and i haven't come up with so we can talk about it um on a future episode next week uh, perhaps um i would encourage you to do that because clearly it provokes a lot of emotion in people and if there's anything we like talking about ian isn't it it's emotion yes yeah i second that emotion his answer seemed to imply. Did you do anything for uh, Valentine's Day, mate? Yes, I had a relatively expensive takeaway meal and a couple of glasses of wine, Nate. Oh, lovely. Well, I actually spent part of my evening reading a story on the BBC about a farming startup called Hectare, that launched its own equivalent of Tinder for livestock, and they've called it Tudder. Um, There is a chance that this is a big PR stunt, but there is a reason we're talking about it. (laughs) The app has profiles of animals from about 42,000 farms in the UK, and it says that the effort is to help farmers find the perfect breeding partners for their cattle, again, all according to the BBC, um, which also said the farmers can actually put pictures of bulls and cows and swipe right to show their interest in having their cow mounted by, you know, sexy bull 010, you know, GSOH, where H stands for, I don't know, horticulture. Um, Hooves. (laughs) Yeah, very good, mate. (laughs) <laughs> very good um hectare aggregate uh, agritech which also runs an online grain marketplace called grain decks said its aim was to reinvent farm trading and make farmers lives easier and it has a, a, another website called sell my livestock and apparently again i think this is the figure according to the firm one third of british farms already use it to trade animals so it's and this new one this new app does tie into that so there is some legitimacy around it but this all served as a gigantic reminder to me about how much there is going on on farms in the uk with technology i mean last year i spent quite a bit of time reporting on a company called canthus which develops facial recognition technology for cows and the the CEO, David Hunt, and I spent quite a lot of time talking about this. And I thought, well, the best way to figure out how tech is being used on a farm in this way is to go to a farm outside Dublin, meet some of the cows, meet a farmer, and talk to the CEO about how 
facial recognition technology for cows is actually beneficial. And I, we never yet ended up using any of that uh, audio that I recorded uh, for anything else. And so I've decided to to use it here a little bit. And you're about to join me on a farm near Dublin with CEO of Canthus, David Hunt, learning exactly um, how this sort of tech is helping move the industry forward. Oh, there's five cows just born this morning. Do you oh, come and see them? Yeah, absolutely. I didn't come all this way not to see baby cows. this morning to yesterday. Jeez, it's a shame we didn't have the cameras on them. Would have been nice to get the birthing. this morning and you were only after I think nice is a subjective term there. Yeah. No, you see, we're setting up birthing alerts. So, again, on a machine learning basis, the more representative footage you have, the quicker you can build the alerts. So, I mean, Call me um, uh, ill-informed here or, or ignorant, but I can usually tell when a cow is being born because it's coming out of the back of another cow. Yes. So what does what does an AI system add? Oh, we're in a it means very the, dark barn. It now. means the farmer can be sleeping in their bed and just get a ping to go out and make sure the calf is delivered okay, as opposed to sitting up all night watching it on a CCTV monitor. I'm with you. Okay. Yeah. So it's a quality of life uh, support for the farmer. Oh. Hello. Welcome to life. Um, so these cameras, these particular ones, these are all pointing towards where they're eating. There, there aren't, but I can also see there are cow, there's a camera in the middle of the barn there. Is that because they're drinking? Water drop, yep. So, so it's monitoring not just the, 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 the grass and grain, it is also monitoring uh, water intake as well. Yes, and while we haven't turned this on yet, uh, we're also doing body condition scoring at the water trough as well. And the cameras do that too? Yeah, so it's, and again, this is the thing versus wearables. Uh, wearables do lots of things and they're very useful in certain areas, but if you put a wearable on a cow for every different function you need to read on the cow, the cow is going to be walking around with, with 10 wearables on it, uh, which like obviously has practicality issues. Um, so that's one of the reasons, again, that computer vision is such a nice way of doing with doing this because you can do many different functions using a single camera. And again, this was one of the bets the company made when we started the company, that you could use imaging sensor plus software-driven interpretation of the images to convert that paired those paired uh, processes into a universal measurement device um, and we bet that that combination would beat using a whole load of active sensors like wearables so passive remote sensing using computer vision was going to beat uh, direct wearable based measurement we felt i see so yeah. you can you can actually say okay well camera one is hardly any cows have been eating there over the last yeah uh, three or four hours. And we can do the same with the drinking as well. So if I go on the drinking, we can see uh, for they're ignoring one drinking trough and they're heavily using another yeah. one, which again is indicative. I don't know, is it a boss cow preventing access to this one? Or a dirty trough. Territorial, or a dirty trough. That is silage, so that's fermented grass. And then this is the fresh cut. I see. And if you deliver all three of those in a ration, the, the cows are... As you can see, they're they're all feeding heavily. Yeah, except so, the one that we've just interrupted. I'm very one, sorry, yeah. number 3087. And again, this is one of the things our system does. So when cows aren't happy with the food, you see way more sifting and sorting behavior. So sifting and sorting, basically they're nosing the food around without taking bites of it. If you look at these cows, 
there is very little sifting and sorting going on and they're pretty much 100% feeding. Yeah. That means I really love this food. I see. And yeah, it's all going in. Yeah, so we can send, and if we see sifting and sorting behavior starting to increase, we can immediately tell the farmer, hey, there are palatability or mixing issues with your feed. You need to go and address this. I see. Because one of the things that goes on in the, in the animal feed industry at the moment is that, um, uh, that, again, we're trying to get around, is that currently, so if the price of barley drops through the floor, you're going to try to maximize the inclusion rate of that cheap commodity in your feed. But your feed formulation calculator or your spreadsheet that you use to do that can't tell you um, how palatable that actually is to the animals. So while you're thinking you're saving money by maxing out your inclusion rate of a low-cost commodity, you may actually be losing money because your animals aren't eating the food because it's not palatable to them. So by combining uh, a feedback system like ours, with a feed formulation calculator, you can be sure that the cows actually like what I'm putting in front of them. I'm with you. I'm with yeah. you. Okay, that makes sense. You all do look very happy cows. Hello. You're used to hearing the smooth, velvet sound of Nate's voice drizzled over your ears like a warm eardrum syrup, topped off with the freshly squeezed citrus tang of an Ian Morris opinion. Supporters of the show at patreon.com forward slash UK tech enjoy second helpings every week. So pull up a chair, find your nearest spoon, and tuck into a sumptuous extra helping with no commitment. If you have any allergies, please inform a waiter. Text message keeps you informed about the British tech landscape, but let's check in with our friends at Daily Tech News Show and hear what's been happening in the wider world of technology this week. Hey, this week on Daily Tech News Show, we talk about what's making the game Apex Legends do so well and whether it can get EA back in the game against Epic's Fortnite. Discussed why Activision Blizzard isn't doing as well as some people might think, but how they could have handled their staff layoffs differently. We delved into why a publisher might want to give Apple 50% of its subscription revenue, and Patrick Norton tells us whether it's a good time to buy a video card. All that and more at DailyTechNewsShow.com. Thank you, Tom Merritt, and thank you to our Patreon uh, supporters supporting us every week at patreon.com forward slash UK tech. Um, you can help us finish this month with one more patron if uh, you're able to go to that website and, and maybe just give us a try for a month. And uh, this week we had a, a fascinating discussion debate about the new upskirting law that has been brought into force in Britain. We talked uh, at great length about that. Does it apply to kilts? How does it relate to laws in Japan uh, and Scotland as well? So um, that's out now in the Patreon version of the show, as well as uh, a, a much longer version of the interview with uh, with the CEO of Patreon, Jack Conti, in fact, uh, where we discussed a few things a bit more, uh, probably a bit more interest to people who are already involved in Patreon. Um, but that's uh, available now. And thank you to everybody supporting us there. Yes, um, and we'd love to hear from you. Send any comments to hello at techpodcast.uk and follow us on Twitter. It's at textmessagepod to keep up to date with the most important UK technology headlines throughout the week. And thanks to everyone listening to us on our free ad-supported feed. If you've got a minute, leave us a review on iTunes. It's the absolute best way of supporting us without spending a penny. It's true. So from me, Nate Langson. And me, Ian Morris, we'll see you in one week.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.